Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Does America need a new national anthem? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Also, I've got a new class out, Reading George Washington, appropriate for the month of July. Of course, if it's July 2023, use the coupon code WASHINGTON at checkout. Get $70 off the course, and you get a great deal. It's the lowest price you'll ever see it. So if you want it, it's 25 lectures on George Washington, the real George Washington, in his own words. So we go over who George Washington was as a man, why he's so important, some of the policies and other things he followed. It's not just his presidency. We take it from the time he's a teenager until the time he dies in 1799. So it's a really awesome course, and you're going to want it. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab or go to Spotify for podcasters. Become a member there. Click on the super thanks button. A little heart on the video if you're watching on YouTube. Another great way to support the show. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. And also send me those show requests if there's something you want to hear. All right. Well, let's talk about this idea of America having a new national anthem. So before I get into this piece, which, by the way, has a little bit of language in it. So if you are, have a tender ears, I'm just going to read the piece as is. This is in The Guardian. But if you have tender ears, there is a little bit of language here. And it shows you the, the, uh, the state of American journalism and what passes for, quote-unquote, intellectual material, how bad it actually is. But anyways... Let's talk about this national anthem first, the national anthem itself. The piece is correct in one way, that the national anthem was not the national anthem until the 20th century. We didn't have a national anthem, and there was a reason for that. We didn't need one. Now, this whole point of having an, an anthem before every ball game and saying the Pledge of Allegiance, I've gone over this on this podcast before. That's a creation of the progressive era and the extreme nationalism, really, of the World War I and World War II period. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't do these kind of things. So uh, this is, I mean, I, I would think that we don't need to do that before everything. We don't need to have some type of martial display of loyalty to the U.S. flag before every event. That's not really necessary. And for most of American history, it wasn't really necessary. But, of course, we have this now. Just like the saying the Pledge of Allegiance and the origins of the Pledge. You know, people talk about the Pledge and being patriotic by saying the Pledge. Well, the Pledge was written by a socialist minister who wanted to ensure that you had some type of belief in the United States that was in line with uh, the Lincolnian myth of American history. One nation, indivisible, 
And of course, you would say it with a Bellamy salute, which would look very much like the Nazi salute. It wasn't exactly like it, but it would look very much like it. You click your heels together, put your arm outstretched toward the flag. And so that's when Roosevelt said, okay, we can't do that during World War II. We've got to change this. Put your hand over your heart. But this whole point of a national anthem, a pledge of allegiance, it's a, it's a relatively recent creation in America. Now, there are always patriotic songs. And uh, you go back, there's books written about this, all the songs that have been produced uh, for the United States and by Americans. I mean, one of the most patriotic songs uh, for, for the United States for a long time, of course, was Dixie. It was Even Abraham Lincoln loved the song. People would play that as a patriotic song along with the Star Spangled Banner and others. And many of these tunes, particularly early on in the early 19th century, would just take the melody from something else and they'd put new lyrics to it and they would, they would make that their own. There's nothing wrong with that. You see music for a long period of time. I have a friend of mine who's, who's a music uh, historian. Music for a long period of time would steal. Everyone would steal. They would do it incessantly. In fact, it was kind of a thing that you would you had to do if you if you wanted to be someone who was prominent. You'd take some other popular melody, change it just slightly, and make it your own, and that became another part of popular music. But people would would borrow from each other all the time, so this wasn't uncommon. The uh, the piece reference slaps at the at the Star Spangled Banner because it isn't even an original melody. <clears throat> now the point of this piece, of course. It's a reflection on a couple of things. Number one, the proposition nation myth, and also our guilt-driven history in America now. And the other, of course, is this idea that really sprang up in the last several years uh, with Juneteenth, and then with this idea there's a black national anthem. This is the point. They're trying to move, they're saying all this stuff, we can't have the, the Star Spangled Banner because the guy that wrote that is a bad guy. And it's about an America that's not inclusive. we got to have inclusive America. Well, I mentioned uh, a few weeks back that the Star Spangled Banner was one of those pieces that drives the Wokies mad. It is. It's one of the 11 songs that I went over that drives the Wokies nuts. And here is another evidence, another piece and evidence of that. They want to get rid of it. Now... The reaction for most conservatives will be, well, yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is a travesty. You know, we we've got to. Uh, I mean, this is just an abomination. This is this is wokeism gone mad. Well, I mean, it's certainly part and parcel for what they're doing. They do want to remake American culture, and it's about power for them. It's about power control. There is a bit of control in this. But the other part of this should be a, a reflection on why we even have these nationalistic things, anyways. Are they really that necessary? Is this really conservative? Looking at when these things came as far, became part of the national conversation, well, the progressives, the socialists were behind this. Franklin Roosevelt. Do we want to conserve the early progressive era and really the high point of progressivism in America by saying the national, singing the national anthem before everything or saying the Pledge of Allegiance before everything? Do we want to conserve that? Or do we want to go back to the Federal Republic, which is the real time we need to be conserving in America? And of course, the Star Spangled Banner is part of that early Federal Republic. It's written by Francis Scott Key during the War of 1812. And Francis Scott Key was uh, 
I mean, he was as traditionally American as you can get. But are we, is this, is this what we want to do? <clears throat> do we want to conserve 20th century American progressivism or do we want to conserve the 19th century uh, and early Federal Republic Americanism, which is Jeffersonian? Is that what we would like to conserve? So there's a real conversation to be had here about saying the pledge and singing the national anthem before everything we do. And look, I've got no problem with the, with the Star Spangled Banner. It's a, it's a historic piece. It's a piece that was written during a time of great peril. What the piece misses, what this piece I'm going to read to you misses about the Star Spangled Banner, is how triumphant this was. The conquering of the United States was stopped. I mean, the United States was looking to lose its independence again. And so there's Francis Scott Key as a prisoner on a barge watching the Battle of Fort McHenry and penning this poem and saying, look, this is glorious. We actually beat the British again. It's an affirmation of the American War for Independence. And I think in many ways, I mean, that's the glorious part about the song. But let's get into the piece because there's going to be a new documentary uh, that's going to get into this, which I won't watch. But this is by Andrew Lawrence. And again, there's some language in this, so. I'm just going to read it word for word. Only in America is the most influential songwriter a slave-owning trial lawyer with, exact, with exactly one hit. I mean, think about how stupid this slap just was. Only in America is the most influential songwriter a slave-owning trial lawyer with, with exactly one hit. Well, um, so that's an ad hominem attack. It doesn't have anything to do with the, with the song. It doesn't have anything to do with the prominence of the, or the importance of the lyrics of the song or the historical context of the song. But nope. And I wouldn't say that he's the most influential songwriter either. In fact, the most influential songwriter in America, melody-wise, melody-wise, would be singing Billy Walker. And that would be Amazing Grace. The melody of Amazing Grace, which is the most influential song around the world, was written by a Southerner from South Carolina, singing Billy Walker. Uh, that would be the most influential melody. And of course, it would he had more than one hit because of his influence in, in church music. But to say this is the most influential song is just ridiculous. Everybody in America knows Amazing Grace. It doesn't matter who you are. You know that tune. Everybody's heard it. Now, I mean, everybody's heard the Star Spangled Banner too, but I would say that around the world, Christian communities around the world, and even communities that may not be Christian, have at least been exposed to that tune before. But of course, because he's a slave-owning trial lawyer, well, I mean, we can't think that Francis Scott Key is anything. Worse, Francis Scott Key stole the melody from a British pub hymn that had been lingering in the 19th century Equivalent of the public domain. Oh my gosh. He stole it. Well, again, people borrowed these things. This happened all the time. This was not unusual. But of course, when you're Andrew Lawrence, who's writing this, and you're this stupid, you don't really understand how these things worked, you're going to write dribble like this for The Guardian. The lyrics... All about him watching the Yankees and the Redcoats. Well, they wouldn't. They weren't the Yankees at this time. 
bomb the shit out of each other for a whole day in Baltimore could have carried the 19th century equivalent of a parental advisory, too. Oh, yeah. It sure could have. How? This is just a dumb statement. First of all, the language was unnecessary. Second of all, uh, these people weren't the Yankees. That would be a particular type of New Englander. These were Southerners in Maryland resisting the invasion of Maryland by the British. That's a glorious thing. So to reduce it to this shows you how stupid this individual actually is. And it is. Andrew Lawrence has the mental capacity of about a 10-year-old in writing this. In fact, maybe not even that old. It took a century and an act of Congress of the Star-Spangled Banner to become the American standard, which would seem proof of how catchy it isn't. Without school drills or Whitney Houston or the constant drumbeat of patriotism, likely the banner reverts to scribbles on a page decades ago. I'm not necessarily in disagreement with that. I mean, again, there's, there's, uh, there's images of uh, the Star-Spangled Banner being sung film, of the Star-Spangled Banner being sung before a ball game, and the ball players just kind of walking or milling around. Nobody really cares. This is before it became the quote-unquote national anthem. Um, it was just something to do. But it was a song that reflected an important part. We don't really have a tune from the American War for Independence that was as important as this, right? So it's a song that reflected that. So it's it's not necessarily um, non-patriotic, but maybe it wouldn't be as well known. I, I don't disagree with this point. It got Peter Nix thinking, if you could imagine an anthem for today, what would that be and how would you do it? That's the hand-on-heart question at the center of Anthem, a Hulu documentary from Nix on the journey to make a fight song that reflects the country's tortured soul. Now see what happened there. A fight song? A fight song. So what we need is a... Like, you know, you think about a fight song. You think about a a college, right? (laughs) I mean, how stupid is this? And it reflects the country's tortured soul, the proposition nation, right? The not living up to the promise of the Declaration of Independence. That's what we need. Nick's the pensive director. He's pensive. Hmm. The pensive director, whereas Francis Scott Key is just a slave-owning trial lawyer. You see? Nick's is a pensive, thoughtful man, whereas Francis Scott Key is just a, just a bad guy. This is subtle, but this is what they're trying to do here. This guy is just should be relegated to nothing. This song would be nothing because he's a slave owner. He's a trial lawyer, but Nick's, well, he's pensive. And we got this Hulu documentary that's going to be about this. And all the people in that are going to be real musicians with real stories, not like slave-owning Francis Scott Key. The pensive director behind a trilogy of docs exploring institutions in his Oakland hometown. Yes, Uh, Because Oakland, of course, is the heart of America. Enlists the help of two expert ears, the jazz pianist Chris Bowers, who no one's ever heard of, who composed the scores for Bridgerton, Green Book, and other screen gems. Yeah, I mean, those are, I mean, look, they're all on my playlist. The scores for those, I jam to them every day when I go, when I drive around the, go to work and around the home. I've got those scores going on. And DJ Dai, the hip-hop producer behind Kendrick Lamar, Big Sean, and more chart toppers. Oh, yes, they're also on my playlist, all of those. 
Most people would read this and say, who the hell are these people? So you're going from a guy that's just a simple trial lawyer, you know, slave owning, to, to two guys who nobody has ever heard of before either. I mean, this is, this is how ridiculous this is. But anyways. In fact, Ryan Cogler, an executive producer on this film, was reminded of the sheer glut of pop anthems that speak to the American experience while premiering this 97-minute thought exercise at the Tribeca Film Festival. So the sheer glut of pop anthems that speak to the American experience, this 97-minute thought exercise. How about a 97-minute piece of trash? But anyways, thought exercise, though. This is, a, this is art. This is a thought exercise. And all the pop anthems that speak to the American experience. It's a trip how many songs just New York has. <laughs> It's a trip how many songs just New York has. Oh, yes, because um, New York is the center of America. Well, I mean, some people think it is. I'll tell you where there are places that have songs about everything. It's the South. The American experience. The Black Panther director tells The Guardian over a Zoom call with his collaborators early this week. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, again, nothing says America like the Black Panthers. We walked across the Brooklyn Bridge, and they had these, like, 360-degree photo booths. And they weren't just playing the same song. They were playing the same 30-second loop of Empire's State of Mind. But the thing, too, Ryan, it was the same weekend as Puerto Rican independence, said Dai, noting the uh, reggaeton beats echoing around the city as well. In America, people don't fully realize that there are a whole bunch of songs that were being considered as a national anthem. As next, Hail Columbia, My Country, Tis of Thee, This Land is Your Land. There's something about the American character, the American personality, that seems to want to say that there can be only one song. What I'm saying, you can't have these songs. In fact, you go to ball games, they play these other things all the time. God Bless America, whatever. I mean, they play this stuff. Of course, you can't sing God Bless America. Kate Smith has been canceled. Because she sang bad things, too. Rather than dream up a new version of Key's jingle from the cosseted isolation of an L.A. studio, studio Bowers and Dai climbed into a, a drop-top Mustang and set off on a six-city listening tour, zigzagging from the Midwest to the Deep South and back to the Bay Area. When you aren't fearing for the safety of these two black men on the open road... <laughs> When you aren't fearing for the safety of these two black men on the open road. This is a mental disorder. I mean, these people act like we're, we're, in, you know, we're, we're in the film of Mississippi Burning. This is, this is a mental disorder. What, what's going to happen to these guys? They're driving. Do you realize, I mean, these people, I think, live in this world where they don't realize that the majority of black Americans live in the South. Still. And that's just a common everyday thing if you're in the South. <laughs> so what's going to happen to him? I'd be more afraid of him up in Boston. <clears throat> I'd be more fearful for their lives in, in Boston than, than uh, in the South. And this is just stupid. This is absolutely stupid. Absolute mental illness. I'd be more afraid for these people in Chicago or, or uh, you know, New York City, or heck, even Baltimore. I'd be more afraid for them there. 
than traveling through the South. Safety of these two men on the open road, two black men. I mean, because yes, uh, I mean, you, haven't you heard all the stories about people just getting, you know, just completely abused across America and riding around because they're black? I mean, this is this is a mental illness. It really is. You're marveling at how eagerly these mega artists take to being music theory students while stepping themselves, I'm sorry, steeping themselves, excuse me, in the distinct sonic flavors of each region they pass through. These music, these mega artists, oh, oh yeah, uh, mega artists that nobody's really ever heard of. At first, the task of allowing jazz, country, and native songscapes to America's other disparate sounds seems as impossible as consolidating 50 states under one flag. But it wasn't long before Dai's ba base instincts took over. Sampling. His stock and trade is all about taking any genre and bringing it into our world, he says. I knew that if we could find one thing in each song, we could relate it to other parts. So what is... So his... This guy's claim to fame is sampling. What is sampling? It's stealing songs from something else and making a song. Just as the piece opens up saying this is stolen. <laughs> so his claim to fame is stealing songs to make a song. That somehow was great, but Francis Scott Key, by using a, an accepted rhythm that people understood, a melody people understood, was somehow, you know, stealing. This is how stupid these people are. They really are mentally dense. Each jam session on the road was an occasion for local performers to lecture on music history and wax on about their art forms, particular knack for making transcendent connections. During one stop at a juke joint in Clarksdale, Mississippi, a white female keyboard player looks like she might strike a sour note with the black members of her quartet while recalling her past affection for the old state banner, which you'll recall had a whole Confederate flag inside. Oh yeah, because these people, I mean, if, that, if they like that, then they were just bad people. But after sounding out other black friends, she developed a newfound appreciation for that symbol's underlying menace. Now she says in the film, I think I, if I see it, I think, oh God, I make assumptions about what kind of person must live in that house to fly that flag. Well, that just shows this person's stupid. But you see, she sounded out some people. And it just, but you know, in the state of Mississippi, when they did polls on it, the majority of the people in Mississippi wanted to leave the flag alone. Even black people in Mississippi had no problem with it. But... You had outside forces working on this. But see, this woman just can't... Uh, I mean, she wouldn't jive with all this. What, what these people think... Uh, again, they, they live... They're from Oakland. So their mind, what the South is, is a place of extreme segregation. Nobody talks to each other. There's, everybody's Everything's segregated. No black and white people are around each other ever. There's no conversations. There's no people helping each other. There's no people working together and living together. That's the South, right? The, the the not what they're describing, but what I just described: people being around each other, living and working together. You know, being uh, familiar conversations. That's the South. All over the South, that's what it is. But not to people in Oakland. They think it's going to be some kind of of uh, you know again Mississippi burning their their mind is Mississippi burning because that's they watch that film and they think that if I go to Mississippi that's what's going to be like but not all the anthem's discordant beats are so easily harmonized at the end of their tour Bowers and Dye convene a writer's room to help the songwriting process along only for sparks to fly between a Nashville country music queen and a Cali Feminton the later a 
Chicana social justice warrior feels the new song should be honest about America's broken promises to Latin immigrants and indigenous people. <laughs> so, uh, it should be about that, right? Because that's America. Broken promises. In other words, it should be about the failed proposition nation. But we had it. We had the proposition nation. We just failed. The former, a blonde ex-contestant on The Voice, doesn't think an anthem should betray its country with constructive criticism. Ultimately, the stalemate is broken by the estimable poet laureate Joy Haro, who amplifies the argument for solution-oriented lyrics while making a pitch for sprinkling some indigenous spoken word onto the bridge. Oh, yes, I'm sure this is going to be a fascinating song. Tense moments. The thing is, why do these... Who cares about these people? Why would they get to write the... I mean, why would they have... Who, who would care about their national anthem? Nobody. So they're just making a song... And they're hoping by making a movie out of it, um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be the national anthem. I mean, this is there's some hubris in this too. You got to see it. Tense moments are par for the course when reappraising something as sacrosanct as the banner. Jose Feliciano and Jimi Hendrix kicked off the controversy in the 1960s with their singular interpretations of the anthem. Of course, everybody slathers their special sauce on it now. Even the renditions that were once considered so offensive, looking at you, Carl Lewis, have taken on a certain charm in hindsight. Well, that's because people laugh at that. They make jokes out of it. The scholars in our film talk about why those were the versions that captured America so much, says Nix. The versions where people of color take the song and make it their own. The film also nods at the pushback against pairing Key's opus with James Weldon Johnson's Lift Every Voice and Sing, I, a.k.a. the Black National Anthem, a hornet's nest that kicked up again when Abbott Elementary, Abbott Elementary Sherry Lee Ralph performed that song at this year's Super Bowl. People like the Star Spangled Banner. They like it. It has a certain ring to it. They like the, there's a, there's a comfort to it, whether I think we should have it everywhere or not. But what they're doing here is... Uh, tearing down what a many Americans think is a part of Americana, and they just, they're not going to like it. Now, again, what they bring up here, that you know, they're kicking the hornet's nest and these kind of things. People are asking, why do we need a separate anthem that's, in, in many ways, segregated, right? It's a separate anthem, and we just have one anthem. It's supposed to incorporate everybody, but now we're trying to separate everything out. So, I mean, that's their point. Well, we need to have an anthem that's inclusive. Who says the Star Spangled Banner isn't inclusive? You're just saying it's not because of the person that wrote it. That's an ad hominem attack. But again, as I said at the beginning, having this as uh, a conversation about even having the anthem performed before everything is another is another point. When I asked Cogler if his famously exhaustive reference Bible for the Black Panther franchise included an anthem for Wakanda, a cautious smile creases his face. Um, I'm not going to answer that, he says, leaving the Zoom room in titters. So we need a we need a a film. We need we need a Wakanda anthem. That would be the new anthem for America, the Black Panther franchise. Superheroes. Superheroes. Instead, he shares a story about the experience with his uncle, a longshoreman who was a treasurer in the International Longshore and Warehouse Union and very politically active. Cogler remembers his uncle facilitating an exchange program and playing host to a group of student activists from South Africa. I had dinner with them, marched with them, not knowing I was going to make a film with a good chunk of dialogue in their language. I remember at one point them saying, we're going to share some of our national songs with y'all. And they did, like 13, and knew them all by heart. Some of the songs had dances. Then it was like, your turn now. We had maybe one song, Lift Every Voice. 
I remember struggling for some of the words and feeling really embarrassed, you know. The anthem Bowers and Dolly ultimately arrive at, We Are America, hence all the right notes. It's all the right notes. It's wistful, hopeful. You can just picture a ballpark crowd standing at attention and singing along. Nix drops the curtain on anthem with a studio range performance featuring everyone who contributed the piece. And though it winds up resonating with exactly the sort of we are the people uh, silliness that Bowers and Dolly had hoped to avoid, an earworm is an earworm. And this one will stay bored in your brain well after the closing credits roll. At any rate, it's just one interpretation. Wait until her or Camilla Cabello get hold of this sheet music. They're exactly the young artists the filmmakers believe will drive the biggest changes to the national anthem. They're going to paint it differently. Flip it. Use it a different use a different brush, says Dye. And of course, there will inevitably be those who see two black men supplanting the work of an ex-slave owner and cite them for erasure or worse. An un-American act. Well, nobody's going to do that. It's just not... That, that's not what people are going to... I mean, I'm sure people are going to say this is un-American. I wouldn't say that at all. I would just say that their their uh, their vision is the exact thing that they're tearing down. Where is the historic event in this that created that? There, there was something going on here that was tangible. This is just idealism. There's a tangible and there's an idealistic. What they're looking to do is create an idealistic situation. Ideology rather than tangible. But the anthem Bowers and Dye offer up isn't meant to replace the Star Spangled Banner. All they're doing is putting music to an imperfect union based on one perfect idea and showing the folly of boiling that 246-year history into a single stanza song. Well, there are more stanzas to the song. It's not just one stanza. It's just the one that everybody knows. Uh, but look at how he defines it. All they're doing is putting music to an imperfect union based on one perfect idea. All they're doing is creating ideology. You see, you have tangible. You have tangible, something real. America is defending itself from invasion, its independence. And it's about the flag itself. And then, and what that union meant, independence. And then you're creating something that's an idea. There's something entirely different about this. People won't get it. They won't see it that way, but that's exactly what's happening in here. They're, so what's the difference in that to the West Coast Stroudsians with the proposition nation myth? Nothing. There's no difference. It's just that the Stroudsians would say, well, we reached that. And these people would say, we haven't. Again, if you know, if you understand how, how this really is a, an earworm, a bore, this is boring down into everything. It's a cancer in so many ways. But it's, it gets into everything. It infects everything. If you understand that, then you understand this. Worst case, you'll come away thinking it might be time for a fractured country to consider a national mixtape. People already do this. To say that it doesn't happen is just stupid. People do this all the time. Our song is more of inspiration to remind people of the power of their voice as it relates to our personal stories, says Nix, a 55-year-old trans descendant of sharecroppers. That proximity to our not-so-distant history is powerful, and an anthem is about all about telling that story. So, again, the idea that we can have more than one, who cares? You can sing whatever you want. Um, and, uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is interesting to me because we just talked about how the Wokies didn't like the Star Spangled Banner. And 
That's the whole point. Again, get to the point. What they're trying to do is remake American culture under an idea. And the 1619 Project is about an idea, and all these things are about an idea. This is what they're trying to do. So, anyways, I thought this was an interesting piece that needed to be brought up because some of the funny parts of it and some of the things they said where they have no one, no real understanding of America. It's all about their their imagination and their ideology. It's not about a real tangible thing, which is, in so many ways, what Francis Scott Key was doing. All right, see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.